So today I'm here with Sarah Isles Johnston, and we are talking today about a paper that you wrote back in, I think it was 2011, Whose Gods Are These? A Classicist's Look at Neopaganism. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure to be here. For those who are not familiar with this paper, can you give a brief summary or overview of what the paper is about, what it entails, kind of the objectives or goals of the paper? There were two sort of sets of objectives. One was that a dear friend of mine was turning 70 and his students were collecting papers in his honor by scholars. And I was asked to contribute. Uh, the guy's name is Philippe Bourgeau. He's a wonderful French historian of um, ancient religions. And I knew that Philippe was really interested in the creative ways in which religion or religions, plural, I should say, can be used. So I saw this as an opportunity to finally pursue my um, longtime interest in neo-paganism. It kind of gave me the open door to indulge in that. So that was one purpose, which I think is important to realize, both because it, it tells you right away I had never worked on it before, but also that I see neo-paganism as one among many other religions. I don't see it as being terribly unusual um, as religions mm -hmm. go. I respect it as I respect all religions. But then to get back to better answering your question, I think the reason it had always fascinated me is that it is a religion which, and I mean this in a positive sense, is largely created by those who practice it. Your your paper uh, focuses on how uh, neo-pagans use scholarly uh, works, academic work, to create the religions. I think the the term uh, is poaching in the stacks, and I I love that that phrase. It, it, I think it captures the the essence of what is happening there. Could you explain a little bit uh, what that is and how does that maybe cross into appropriation or cultural appropriation in any way? Um, so I poached that term from Sabina Malioko, who is both a neo-pagan herself and an eminent scholar of neo-paganism. And she had poached it from Michel de Sertu, um, an anthropologist who used it to describe what um, educated practitioners of cultural practices, including religions, do. In other words, they go to the library and they read up on it. And this was already explored to some extent in Tanya Lerman's book of, I think, 1996, Persuasions of the Witch's Craft, where she described the English practitioners that she studied as being um, absolutely bibliomaniacs. Um, they were reading novels about the Middle Ages. They were reading fantasy works such as The Lord of the Rings. And they were, quote unquote, poaching from all of these sources in order to construct their particular strand of neo-paganism. Mm -hmm. Understood. Oh, and you were asking, how is it different from cultural approach? Uh, yeah, how does it overlap with... with so my particular thing, uh, uh, what I what I do, um, I, I combat and confront uh, cultural appropriation of Hellenism, particularly within neo-paganism. And I was just wondering how does maybe poaching the stacks um, blur into or, you know, overlap, overlap with perhaps cultural appropriation itself. So for if you're not aware, so within American paganism and other forms of paganism in more of the uh, Anglophonic sphere, mm -hmm. they've appropriated, some pagans have appropriated the, the identity of Greek people, Hellenism, 
as a faith-based like pagan religion in terms of if someone were to say i believe in athena i do hellenism they've created uh, an entire neo-pagan religion out of the term which greek people use to identify their identity and culture so that's what i a lot of the work that i do is to kind of show how that is happening and where it happens um, your this your paper itself actually inspired me to do a lot of that work uh, currently because I've been reviewing some books that have been coming out and I see how the academic material is being used or where it's not being used, the selective process of sources. So it's been very, um, your paper was actually very helpful in understanding the process of American pagans. I'm really glad it was helpful. I guess my response to your question then is twofold. First of all, I've noticed that at least among academics, and I think in the general public, the term appropriation, either cultural appropriation or just appropriation, is a negative one. It means someone doing something in an illegitimate way. Very often that's associated um, in both academia and the outside world with the idea that someone doesn't have a right to be taking something. So I'll just make up an example that a woman goes to the southwest part of America and sees um, Native Americans performing a ritual and thinks it's really cool. And so she goes home to Columbus, Ohio, where I live. I'm still making this up and says, well, I'm going to perform that ritual. And she thinks that she is genuinely performing the ritual. To me, that would be appropriation because she has taken very few pains and made very little effort to really understand what the ritual is, how it's being used by those um, who I will say it belongs to. That in itself is a problematic term, mm -hmm. of course, but um, she's being very um, limited in her exploration of what the ritual is and means. So that's what I mean when I say appropriation is often a very negative term. It could be resurrected with a more positive meaning, of course, to simply mean any act of borrowing of a cultural product. And at, at this point, I'll say, I think a lot of people who are accused of appropriating, in fact, aren't in any negative way. They're, they're, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there, yeah. there's good faith. Oh, yeah, in, absolutely. In and maybe, in yeah. fact, this first act of you know, what the outside world is calling appropriation could lead to that person slowly becoming more and more deeply involved in that religion. In fact, I would say that almost everyone who um, embraces a religion, at least as, as adults, whether they started as, ch as children or only started as adults, they are appropriating and they're only slowly learning what that really means. And if they decide they want to stick with it, I guess then we don't call it appropriation anymore. But the term is, is a problematic one for me, as I guess you're figuring out. Now, as a scholar, as a classicist, and you know that pagans rely heavily on academic sources and writings, does that impact how you may write in the future? Like, do you have pagans in the back of your mind when you, when you write about anything now? Uh, again, yes and no, in the sense that I have always, as long as I've been a scholar or been intending to be a scholar of religion, I've always striven to be very respectful of mm -hmm. not just those who I'm writing about, which in 99% of the cases are the ancient Greeks, and so they probably don't know whether I'm being respectful or not, but 
also of anyone reading. So that's the, that's part of the answer. But the other part of the answer is sometimes when I read my older work, I realize I was not achieving that goal that I set out for myself. And so it's an ongoing process. I'm, I'm striving to be respectful. I think I wandered off your question onto a different question. Possibly. It's okay. (laughs) Wherever uh, we go, we go. That's, that's uh, how I like to um, converse, you know, however this naturally flows. So I think you were asking me whether I do things. Um, yeah, like yeah, any of your current writings or your any books that you write when you when you write when you I'm sorry when you are writing about the ancient world, the ancient Greek religions, stuff like that. In what in what capacity do the knowing that there are pagans today okay, right. who might be reading what you're going to publish does it impact you in in any way like uh, in your in what you write and what you publish, knowing that people might take that and construct a religion out of it. Yeah. To go back to Sabina Malioka for a moment, I knew her work and then I met her, I guess it's 15 to 20 years ago. And what became a friendship with her is extremely important to me, both as a scholar and just as a ordinary person. So hanging around with Sabina, although I don't see her as often as I'd like to, hanging around with Sabina has made me better aware of what at least some types of neo-pagans value what they might be able to take away from my work that would either um, upset them or, or, or please them. And although it's never the main thing I'm thinking about when I'm writing a scholarly paper, it's always there in the back of my mind now that what I'm talking about is something that at least some of my readers is going to, potentially affect their religious outlook. It's going to potentially um, make them feel criticized. So that lifelong struggle I've had with learning how to better write respectfully about religion and yet remain a scholar Mm -hmm. has been... um, uh, It's an interesting process. Yeah, Yeah, it's an interesting process. And Sabina has made it more interesting. Oh, very good. I'm I'm glad there's a collaboration there between uh, pagan studies and scholars such as yourself in the classics. Um, I think there's more work that could probably be done there as well. I think there is a role for classicists to perhaps help pagans in some way, I guess, who are studying these things, uh, particularly how to better understand sources. I know know in your paper, one of the things that I highlighted in the paper was this, um, you identified how pagans are selective in the books that they will choose from. Uh, can you explain uh, perhaps one, one or both types of books that pagans uh, typically select? One is what I'll call the encyclopedic book. And a really good example of that is Walter Burkert's um, Greek religion. That's always number which, one on the reading list. Well, I'm going to subsequently in the conversation, if you remind me, I'll tell you about one that's about to come out that yes. will probably replace it. So, yeah, Walter Burkert's book is a really good example of what I'll call the encyclopedic. The other is what I'll call the, um, oh, I know I had a really good term for this in my article, and I'm trying to remember what it was. But essentially, it's works that evoke the feeling of the religion as neo-pagans experience. Oh, the, the eternal spirit, I think. Eternal spirit. Yes. Thank you. Yes, that I think is what I called it. Um, they evoke the eternal spirit of Greek religion. And um, Carl Karenje's mm-hmm. articles and books are sometimes cited in that respect. So as far as what, how we might be able to help 
in a funny way, I think it's the same way that we help, we could help anyone. I'm a huge proponent of scholars writing clearly so that people mm -hmm. can actually understand what the heck they're talking about. Yeah. And I think Walter Burkert, who was a friend of mine, didn't always do that so well. <laughs> um, I, I think he could have done it, it, it better. So I think that's a way that we can help you better than we have in the past. Mm -hmm. I think also what I have increasingly tried to do is when I'm talking about an ancient concept, I always give it in Greek or sometimes in Latin, as the case may be, because scholars need to know what that word was. But I try to make sure I never fail to give it in English. And that sounds mm -hmm. like a really simple thing, but it's not just that people who don't read Greek and Latin want to know what the heck the word means. It's also that if you're seeing it in your own language, it sticks in your brain a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. Yes. I think that's definitely something that I think American pagans uh, uh, would benefit from. I know from the Greek perspective, we can read the language. <laughs> There's a lot uh, ease of access there. And that was one of the things that I've noticed when reading your paper, because one of the things that I, you know, that I do is to discern the differences between me as a Greek practitioner and what Greeks are doing versus what pagans are doing. There's a lot of divergences. Na namely, I've, I've noticed less reliance on secondary sources when it comes to Greeks and a, a heavy reliance on secondary sources when it comes to uh, Americans, for example. I think that I've, but I've seen works that people will quote um, when it comes to Greeks. They like to quote, I think, at times the books that are capturing the eternal spirit, as you say. I think those are popular. Yeah, I, but I, I definitely think there's going to be, uh, in any case, a lot that can be learned from scholars. Any, anyone who puts the time and the effort to really study something and unlock the meanings to things, bring it on. You know what I say? We're all, we welcome it. One of your, actually, it was one of your books. I think it was, um, uh, which one was it? A Greek Religion, Ancient Magic. I forget, I'm sorry, I, um, the title of it is blanking at the moment. I wonder whether you're thinking of, I never wrote a book with the word magic in the or it title. Or was a divination. I, it was the divination book. I think it was in that one. Because I, when I was reviewing a recently published pagan book, they were talking about how you know, the witchcraft, witches weren't uh, uh, punished by the gods for hubris. You know, if you read the myths, witches aren't present in the myths. And it was actually your work that actually points out why that was, you know, that Greek myths, you know, the witches don't fit into the, the you know, the, 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 the narrative of the myth or what the myth is trying to do. And I thought it was very, it was so um, on point. So there's a lot that scholars can can teach us when it comes to trying to understand the context of the ancient world. And I think that's the point I'm trying to get across at is really trying to access the context of the ancient world, why something might be missing and, instead of making assumptions, such as, again, like the pagans, when they construct their religion saying, oh, well, witchcraft is perfectly fine by the gods, because if you look at myth, they're missing from the myths as, as, a, as a character that doesn't get punished. Well, there's a reason for that. And scholars such as yourself can really provide a lot of context that, you know, we need, people need to really understand the ancient world and the society in it. I, I completely agree. And I really like um, your specific example, and I'll, I'll just briefly respond to it, if I may. Yeah that the one time in ancient myth 
where we see a witch being punished. And when I'm using the word witch here, I'm using it in scare quotes yeah. because it, it, what we now mean by witch in popular culture doesn't really map on, but let's say a female practitioner of magic. Yeah. The one time in ancient myth where we do see a female practitioner of magic being punished, of course, is Medea, who's punished first by her aunt, Circe, who doesn't really forgive her for having for Medea having killed her own brother. And then, you know, the gods allow all kinds of bad things to happen to Medea. And why they do that is an open question, at least among scholars. You know, what is the point here? But it is the one little funny instance that I've been puzzled by. Yeah. Um, so it's the exception that proves your rule. Yeah. And you also, know? if I re if I recall correctly, in that chapter, you, you point out that Medea isn't isn't technically human. She is, you know, is better understood as a divine figure within the narrative. So it's not even to see, because this is what, again, a, a, a modern practitioner of witchcraft or magic will say is like, oh, Medea practiced magic. And they, they equate Medea with themselves as a human. And it's, if you look, well, if you look closely at the, you know, at the, the mythology, Medea isn't really fully human. She's semi-divine based on her lineage. So yes, she does fit into more of the category as a divine agent acting upon humans, as I believe you, right. you pointed out, which uh, is, is an amazing observation. And um, one that I really would encourage listeners who are into magic and witchcraft to really read that book uh, that you wrote, I think it would uh, help people understand again the context and really understand the literature. You know what is what is happening there? Who are the characters? What are, what are, what's the hierarchy? What's the structure? Where's the, the what, what's the perfect uh, not perfect, but what is the proper category to sort of understand the different uh, actors and people and how they relate to each other? So I thank you for that uh, work you did there. We talked about how scholars interact with the pagans and the scholarship that's being written. And as you mentioned, you spoke about, you know, having respect and, you know, for the for paganism. Now, on the other hand, for pagans, how would you suggest pagans who are interested in scholarship? How could they best interact with scholars and scholarly material to get the best out of it? First of all, mutual respect. In all my years of teaching, I have very seldom had this happen but it has happened that neo-pagans have come up to me, you know, when I'm teaching a class and let's say it's a large enough class that I don't really know all the students very well. Mm -hmm. They have sometimes come up and in a somewhat supercilious way told me I was wrong. You know, well, that's oh. not what Artemis would do. That's or <laughs> And, and I should also add, of course, it's not only neo-pagans who can be impolite students. Yes. Politeness crosses all religious boundaries. But, you know, that's the only thing I can really think of in an immediate sense of, of being affected as an individual scholar. If you want to look more broadly, though... I think I, the relationship, how, how, what might be, how do we build better relationships with scholars? What should pagans, uh, practitioners keep in mind about scholars and academics and the work that's being produced and in relationship to their religious identities? Maybe that's more a specific oh, okay. question. Okay. That um, our job and what we are judged on as far as being able to keep our job and as far as being able to get the pitiful little races that we, <laughs> that we get every year 
is is based on our ability to prove that what we have published is absolutely anchored in facts. Mm -hmm. And we may have theories about it that we develop, but we always have to anchor it in facts. And those facts are coming out of ancient sources. Sometimes those facts from ancient sources are going to disagree with what a contemporary pagan feels about his or her gods and his or her religion. And we need to have kind of mutual tolerance there and understanding that we're after two different things. And the two things don't have to be non-compatible. I think they can be compatible, but they are different things. And I want to tell you an anecdote about how they might be compatible. I had a doctoral student, an extremely good doctoral student, and she was working on the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. And we somehow got on a rambling conversation in which she said, you know, the ancient gods are so nasty to people. I don't understand how modern pagans can worship them. And I said, well, <laughs> I'll email my friend Sabina and ask her that question. And Sabina wrote back the most incredible response, uh, really just thoughtful, lengthy, um, helpful response saying that, well, neo-pagans believe that just as humans evolve, gods evolve, and that Artemis used to be one way, now Artemis is a different way. And so just as humans, we like to think at least, have evolved into being um, kinder, gentler species, so the gods evolved. And I thought that is such a beautiful statement of mutual respect, respect for my student and I as scholars, that what we're mm-hmm. seeing in the ancient sources isn't wrong, but also, of course, respect for Sabina's own, own community, that the gods that they were worshiping are kind and helpful. Yeah. Or at least often are kind and helpful, maybe not always, I'm not sure. So that's, I often remember that when I'm thinking about issues such as the one that you just brought up. Okay, very good. Um, again, there's another good example of, you know, pagan scholar and classicists, this this interesting back and forth in relationship, how, you know, the, what, you study the ancient forms and then, the, you know, you, you converse with Sabina, who's doing the modern stuff. And this this, uh, this relationship and exchange, it's, it's very interesting. To me, it's very interesting because, you know, it's because I, I asked you, I asked the question because this is something that I have, you know, told pagans time and time again, that what I've noticed is that there seems to be a cult of academia within paganism where, scholars are held up to be almost almost as priests as um people who provide um um exegesis like um you know uh, interpretations and meaning to things and they really take it to heart like this is the truth as if you know they were talking to the priest explaining the bible to them you know it's this it's they built that sort of relationship and i had to remind people like you, you we have to be very careful when we when we do that sometimes there are really good observations that are uh relevant and are really pointing to a truth and sometimes it, it maybe it's not we need to learn discernment and right yeah i i agree but i would say that's the case for any religion mm-hmm. if a person is a christian they might hear many many wise things from their rector or priest or pastor but they might also hear some pretty stupid things of because course. that person's human yes now I would like to know: Do you, because this paper was written uh, about eleven, twelve years ago, or have you? Do you have any desires to maybe revisit the topic and kind of update? I know that when you did the paper, you didn't do uh, surveys of people. It was based on what you can find on the internet, and I think uh, you referenced Sabina's uh, work. 
So do you have any plans to do like a part two of this, uh, this kind of uh, area of research? Not, not in the immediate future, because uh, I've learned more from various friends of mine who are folklorists about how you do these IRL um, sanctioned um, surveys. In other words, how you get permission from the government in order to talk to real people. Oh, I didn't even know yeah. about this, to be honest. I didn't know that was a thing. It's, um, it's a real pain in the neck. It okay. takes a lot of time to um, to get the permission, and then you have to do the work in a very careful way. And if later it turns out you didn't do it in a careful way, you're not allowed to use any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that has kind of, me, kind of put me off it for the moment. I did discover there's a little crack in there that apparently if you're a journalist, you don't have to do any of that. Oh. So there's a, there's a wonderful book by a woman named Lynn Schofield Clark called Angels and Aliens, and it's exploring... Um, contemporary adolescent religious tendencies, but she was a journalist, so she didn't have to get all that government permission. Yeah. So I suppose I could change professions, but um, so at the moment I don't have the time and leisure to do that. I also think that in some ways the field, and this is a good thing, has moved forward so fast in recent years that for me to now catch up is a more difficult thing than it was even 12 years ago. I don't say I never will, just that it, it may be a time coming. I, I will say this, though, which might be interesting to your listeners. One of the book projects that I'm just about to embark on um, is a will be a long-term project on Hecate. And so I'm going to go back to some of the things that interested me in my first book, but also some things that I have more recently found out about how she was viewed in antiquity. Mm-hmm. So I, She's I a very popular I, goddess with the, uh, with the witches and pagans. That's why I thought I'd mention it. Um, yeah. I may not be working on neo-paganism, but I'll be working on the goddess. Oh, very good. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, would you have any advice for people who might be doing this sort of research, uh, such as myself? Uh, I'm, you know, this, this is a topic I'm very interested in researching how, how pagans use scholarship to construct their religions and just, you know, uh, keeping tabs on what's being produced. You know, what I would say is find yourself a friendly scholar of ancient religion that you can ask questions of because it's hard for us to keep track of what's going on out there. And so for someone who's not a professional scholar who knows exactly you know, what databases to look at and then how to evaluate what the databases say as far as what's being published. I think it would be really hard, but I don't mind it within reason if a neo-pagan or for that matter, someone else occasionally writes to me and says, you know, I just found this article on, um, you know, magic in archaic Greece. It's by so-and-so. Is that any good, do you think? I can say, well, not really. They don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, that's a great article. Hopefully your listeners live close to a college or university where they might be able to meet someone like that, or they meet them in some other way. Short of that, I think you slowly figure out which scholars you can trust. Mm-hmm. And maybe you do it by comparing notes with other people. And then you look at those scholars' bibliographies and just keep reading. Okay, very nice. Thank you for that. 
And um, is there any other thoughts you want to share on the topic before we? Oh, mm -hmm. I was going to tell you about the book that will replace Walter Burke. Oh yes, you mentioned that. What what is it? Is it is it something you're um, writing? No, but in all fairness, I should say it's something my husband is writing. My husband is Fritz Graf. Some of you may know his book, yeah. Magic in the Ancient World. And as a matter of fact, his doctoral advisor was Walter Burkert. Oh. So um, Fritz has just retired and he is spending his time finishing his long-term project, which is a history of Greek religion. Oh, and I say it replaces Walter's book. Uh, I don't mean that Walter Burkert's book was bad. It's brilliantly good. But that book was written in 1984. Mm -hmm. I mean, the German original was. So it's about... It, to use the academic a, term, it's dated. <laughs> right? Dated. It's, time yeah. for, it's time for an update. Yeah, both because um, theory and methodology have changed, but also because we've got new data. Yeah. My husband, for example, is going to be able to talk about Greek religion during the Mycenaean period. Oh, which, which Burkert couldn't do because he just there wasn't enough out there for him to know at that mm -hmm. time. So my husband um, says, at least, that he's going to turn the manuscript into the press. It's been commissioned by Yale University Press. He says he's going to turn it into Yale sometime this fall. And if he keeps to that, then it would be out, I'd say, uh, in fall of 2024. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> I've not seen much of it yet. He's been very... Secretive. How could he keep that? You got to share. Well, you know, I know his passwords. <laughs> I could sneak down in the middle of the night. Yeah, open the laptop and be like, what are you working on? What are you working on? But uh, I don't think he has a working title for it yet, but you can find it under his name. Oh, eventually. Cool. Very good. Yeah. And you also uh, have a new book that just came out too recently. So let's, I want to transition to that too, to tell people about your new book. It's, um, tell everyone the title again. Uh, I have it here. With it's me. called Gods and Mortals, Ancient Greek Myths for Modern Readers. So this is not a scholarly book, although it's informed by my scholarship on myth mm -hmm. for all these decades. It's my retelling of Greek myths. And I've tried to be simultaneously true to the ancient sources but lively engaging telling an actual story and actually i thought about neo-pagans a lot while writing that book because the gods as i was writing it the gods became so real to me this was all i did for about three hours every single day would be devoted to this mm -hmm. but they became very real to me with their faults and their more pleasant aspects. And I thought about neo-pagans because I thought how interesting it is to live in a polytheistic world. Mm -hmm. Like most people in America, um, whether they are devout or not, I was raised in what is essentially a monotheistic world. And polytheism is extremely interesting. It is. It's it's never boring. <laughs> There's always, you know, the myths the myths are are they're mysteries to unravel from my from my perspective. The um I I it's very common for pagans to have a very literal literalist kind of view of things where they'll be like, they're like, Oh, I don't like Zeus, he's so mean in the myths. But you know, that's a very common, you know, something you'll hear within pagan conversations like online, somewhere like that. But from the Greek perspective, you know, we kind of like 
we don't really like lean into the the mythic narrative in a very literal way. We we try to I guess lean more into the philosophical interpretations that you can find from um, like Platonism, for example, to try to get more meaning out of it. Where the story is there for us to to reflect on. You know, we're supposed to reflect on them and see what it, what's what's being what what what's hidden within the myth. You know, like that interpretation process. And that's absolutely valid. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the reason that we really still have the myths or are aware of the myths is because they have meant different things to different people as the centuries rolled on. Yes. And if they had not been capable of changing to suit different people's interests, they would have died. So I, I absolutely agree that using Platonism is one way to find meaning in those myths and and go for it. What was, um, during the writing process for the book, what was um, uh, the most challenging aspect of writing? Because I know you um, yeah, you did a lot of um, adding to it. What I liked what you did was you add, you, again, the context of like the ancient world. I like that. So uh, can you provide anything that was, uh, that you really enjoyed either being challenging or an enjoyment? What was during the writing process when you were retelling the myths? What can you uh, share in terms of that process? The same thing was both challenging and enjoyable. And that was the writing process itself, the finding of just the right word or just the right phrase. I've lived with these myths since I was three years old, and that's all I wanted my mother to read to me. I've lived with them so long, and I wanted to do right by them. I wanted to tell them in a way that satisfied me, but that would also satisfy other people. And so I would sit there sometimes, for it seemed like hours, it probably wasn't really, to write one sentence. And Mm -hmm. then I'd edit the sentence, edit the sentence. And when I was done, I was usually at least relatively pleased with it but it was um it was sometimes a a, a struggle so mm-hmm. i i hope this doesn't sound hubristic or if it is hubristic i hope i hope the gods of the myths aren't listening but i felt like i knew who the gods were and i knew who the the mortals were or at least i knew who they were to me mm-hmm. just finding a way to put them on the paper that was challenging I understand. Yeah, it, you're, it, it's it's not an easy task, you know, to to take uh, ancient myths and uh, to retell them or to you know for the modern reader because I guess the, the the again language style what you put in to really pick, build the picture. Like I remember reading the Pandora myth as you retold it and the extra details to it of like, you know, in the house, the jars, she kept them in the ground to keep them cool. Like it really paints the picture so you can really bring it to life that, you know, I don't think, for example, in the ancient world, they would have been that detailed because that stuff would have been just uh, taken for granted. So you did, they need to narrate that. But I think today as modern readers, it's very important to add in these details so people can build a picture of what it might have looked like back then. And I, I appreciate that you did that kind of work. I think it, it will help people connect to the myths uh, in a in a n- new way. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to hear that because um, I enjoyed doing that, but it was in fact a lot of work. So I'm I'm <laughs> I'm glad that yes. it it worked for you. Very good. 
Um, now, I think uh, someone, I, I, I asked social media if, if anyone uh, who is a pagan or polytheist, if they could ask a classicist the question, what would they ask? And uh-huh. I, I hope this isn't too far out of your your time field. I don't know, you're more into the classics. I don't know how far into late antiquity you go to into. I love late antiquity. And someone actually asked me the question concerning Julian. And if Julian uh-huh. had lived and succeeded and you know restored polytheism, what might it have looked like today? And then I would also ask my own twist on that. If pagans today could see an alternate universe where Julian succeeded and we're in the year 2023 and there's polytheism, would pagans recognize it and would they like it? Those are incredibly good questions, (laughs) which I've never thought about. What were, even though I'm quite interested in Julian, I think one reason I've never thought about them is what people like me are often asked instead is, um, why did Christianity succeed? You know, why? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and we don't have a good answer for that either. It's, it's sort of mystifying mm. even to scholars. Why did that particular religion yeah. take off? So um, I've been so busy worrying about that, that I've never thought about the opposite okay. possibility. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, it would make for a great like alternate like fiction yeah. book you know these someone needs to write that book you know the year 2023 okay. and it's polytheism and you know i i think pagans today wouldn't have liked uh the world that if julian has succeeded because he you know modeled a lot out of christianity like he built a priestly class and things like that so i think you probably would have probably had a, a world you know similar to almost like how Catholicism has like, you know, like a Pope and all these hierarchies. It would be, it would be very hierarchical. And I don't think pagans would really like that if they could see it. Um, Plus you have to remember that Julian was an emperor. He had um, a lot of advantages, a lot of free time, a lot of money at his disposal. And from what we can tell about his particular brand of what for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call theurgy. I'm not sure whether that ever could have been um, spread abroad uh, uh, to a, a, a broad variety of people who did not have the advantages mm. that Julian did. It w- it's not accessible. Yeah, yeah, that's a much shorter way of saying what I'm getting at. It wouldn't have been accessible. And so I don't know what it would have ended up looking like. But I really agree with you that someone should write a book, yeah. uh, a fiction book, um, exploring what that would have been like. Mm-hmm. Of course, Gore Vidal wrote that book on Julian, which is itself bizarrely entertaining, yeah. but that's not quite the same thing. Yeah, I I have a mixed uh, relationship with Julian. I I appreciate like the the enthusiasm, but I think he was too. He he. I think he suffered from. Uh, that was, there's a term for converts when someone converts to a religion, they become very fanatical. Or um, yep. I forgot what the term is, but it, you know, you could tell he was just like he wasn't on the same page as the rest of society. It seems like, yeah, I think he was too overzealous, and it, I think it ultimately, in the end, I have to agree with Magistina Calhos. I think that's how you say her last name. I've been reading uh-huh. a lot of her work, and she writes how you know because of his actions there was a lot of backlash for christianity it it caused a lot of i think fear in people and when you read later history you 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 just see the specter of julian haunting you know greek writers and greek christian you know authors like they always refer back to julian for example in you know with plethon in at the end of the byzantine empire 
I forgot who it was who said it, but you know, they said, oh, he suffered the same affliction that Julian suffered from. And it's this, Julian is just this specter that haunts Christianity for, for, uh, for the centuries after. And I just think he, he, he really ruined things in the end for, you know, polytheists of the ancient world. So I don't really like, I don't put him on a, up on a pedestal like other pagans usually do. Yeah. I tend to agree with you. Um, I don't think he ruined it all by himself. I think plenty of people helped him ruin it. And I don't just mean the Christians. I think as much as I admired aspects of Neoplatonic thought, the Neoplatonists as a whole weren't mm-hmm. exactly doing a great job of selling what they had to offer, or at least not selling it in a way that um, the average person would find it easy to respond to. Yeah. Um, again, I'm making horrible, vast That's general. Uh, uh, yeah, of course, we have to in these sorts of conversations. Well, I'm about to make one about Christians. Okay. What, one thing that the Christians um, tended to be good at was um, helping people understand what Christianity had to offer the average person, or even let's say the below average person, the person who was poor, the person who was, um, you know, marginalized. Christianity spoke to marginalized groups. Yeah. 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 Neoplatonism did not speak to marginalized. No, no, it didn't. And I, I definitely think that's part of the, the, a contributing factor to what happened in late antiquity with Christianity being popular. I've always looked at Christian. What's a, now this is just an observation, um, you know, seeing, for example, like the Orthodox liturgy and everything. And I look around at some, like some of the things I go, this is just theater. I feel like they, what they've taken was the actual theurgy of the Neoplatonists, so an activity, which would everyone would have to participate in you as you as a, um, a follower of that tradition would have to do the theurgy yourself and participate. What I think Christianity does is they made it into more of a theatrical passive experience where people could gather together and watch the priest do the theurgy and you don't have to do it yourself. All you have to do is just receive the communion at the end to do your part. And I think that's right. part of the accessibility that they were able to just make things more accessible to the average person. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting too, though, that theurgy was a little bit weird, even if you set it against paganism of the time in the respect that you're just talking about, because although anyone could sacrifice an animal or yeah. whatever, it wasn't usually a normal, I mean, an average person doing it. It, it was again, the priest. Mm-hmm. So the highly theatrical parts of ancient religion were priest done so to speak um if you were a woman who's worried about her child maybe you offer an outpouring of of wine and honey to demeter asking for her help with the child but that's not theatrical so theurgy really is sitting in a very interesting Mm -hmm. place yeah um you've made me think about it in a in a slightly different way from what i had before Mm -hmm. Um, now, just uh, I think one last question. Uh, this is just to uh, ask you as a scholar, when you are needing to recharge yourself and be re-inspired in your discipline, where do you like to go or what do you like to do? Yeah, there's two places that recharge my battery. One is the annual meeting of academics who work on religion. It's called the American Academy of Religion mm-hmm. slash Society for Biblical Literature. And the Society for Biblical Literature half, the name is very, very old fashioned, 
what it really means is anyone working on ancient religion. So going okay. to that part of the annual meeting is always good for me because yeah. I, I see my academic friends, I hear interesting papers. The other place that I really like going to, and it's a place that I see a, a I see both scholars and I'm not sure what the right collective term is. Well, if I tell you about it, you'll understand better is Esalen, which is a um, retreat place in Big Sur, California. But Esalen has a center for theory and research that holds conferences. And the conferences last about a week. And they're they're very small. They're, they might be only 20 people who are there by invitation. And what's interesting about Esalen is it will have scholars there like, like me, um, but it will also have practitioners of unusual religious or spiritual practices or um, experiencers, so people who have experienced near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Or um, the last time I was there a few months ago, we had tulpamancers. So it's bringing together scholars who want to understand those phenomena better as scholars, mm -hmm. but also people who are participating in those practices or who are experiencing the phenomena and want to understand what they have experienced better. So when I go to one of these sessions at Esalen, I get not only lots of new ideas per se, but lots of new ways of even thinking about the ideas that I had before. Oh, that's really and interesting that, that that exists. That's so cool. And it's also nice that it's in Big Sur, California. You know, that always helps to recharge the batteries yeah. too. But um, yeah, so I think those are the two places I go to. Oh, the other conference I went to only once, sadly, was Pantheacon. And of mm -hmm. course, now Pantheacon. It, it's closed. Yeah. yeah. But I was lucky enough, um, Sabina arranged for me to give a lecture at Pantheacon about um, the goddess Demeter, which is what I was working on at that point. That was great. I had a lot of fun, but I also have to say, I met so many neo-pagans who were just lovely, interesting, vibrant people and treated me extremely kindly and forgave dumb things I said because I didn't know they were dumb things to be saying. Um, I'm so sorry it's no more. No, oh, that's unfortunate. Another one will open up. These things are always, these things are always always spring up. I think there'll be another one eventually. You know, different name or something. But um, yeah. yeah, I actually I don't uh, use the the word lab, uh, pagan myself. I don't identify as pagan. Uh, so it's a, it's always an interesting relationship between me and people who do identify as pagan. I'm go. I actually have a, a paper coming out in um, Equinox Publishing. Uh, oh yeah, by um, paganism in five minutes. So I'm doing a contribution to that volume where I actually do talk about that why some polytheists reject the term pagan. So that will hopefully be, you know, accepted and, you know, published. So, yeah. Well, I hope that the fact that I keep using the word neo-pagan yeah. has not offended you. No, it's, it's, it's fine. It's the one I'm used to. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> but there, there's another example yeah. of how scholars could be more supportive of you guys. If we would learn better, or yes. I should say, if we could better learn the terminologies, I guess. And th th this is the problem, though, with that. And on, it comes to um, the voices being heard. So I, I within, you know, 
within the pagan uh, sphere, you get a lot more of the, what's the word? Um, what voices are being heard? And it's usually amplified by pagans themselves and not, for example, Greeks. Like when we say we're not pagans, we kind of get like ignored, I feel like from both pagans and scholars, they'll just say, well, you're still a pagan by my definition with a capital P as, you know, the modern understanding of it. You know, it, it's it, it, I explain it in my paper, but particularly with Hellenism, because that's something I'm hoping to have impact within academia, where when scholars in the future, when they refer to Hellenism or Hellenismos as a pagan religion, they start uh, knowing to identify it as, as a what's happening there is cultural appropriation of the identity from Greeks, right. which isn't it isn't by definition a religious identity for Greek people. It's a cultural identity. It's an ethnic identity. It's the label we use to identify our history, our language, our dances, our music, all that whole, the whole shebang of an identity. And what pagans have done is they've taken the term and turned it into a religious identity. And there's a conflict there. So my, a lot of my work is trying to raise awareness in academia of this, of this problem. Well, and there's the other problem, which I've been told pagans have stopped worrying about, which is, of course, the etymology of the word pagan, mm -hmm. which means basically hick. Yeah. It's, well, you know this because you know Greek. It's the word that means the countryside. So someone who's pagan is a hick from the countryside, yeah. implying you must be stupid if you believe these yeah. things. So, yeah, no, I hear, I hear what you're saying. And sincerely, we, scholars i mean we need to do a better job maybe there is i was about to say maybe there's something that should be done in specific but i realized the idea i was going to put out there is not such a okay feasible idea. let's just say a better job needs to be done okay um and perhaps um which voices are being, you know, included, perhaps, I guess, when when future research, research is done, you know, we try to capture a larger, maybe audience, I think. Well, that's sort of what I was stumbling towards. And then I realized that what I realized for the article I wrote was that my catchment was already so huge, I couldn't control it. Yes, it, it's hard to control. There's just so much out there. And and so I think inevitably at the moment we might be stuck in a situation where Scholar A is going to work on um, Hellenismo, Scholar B is going to work on people who identify as Wiccans, Scholar C is going to work on people who identify as Neo-Pagans, and maybe at some future date a decade from now, mm -hmm. then we will be able to look more broadly at how these groups do and do not yeah. um, share qualities with one another. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm talking as a, a scholar, you know, yes. I'm, I'm therefore yeah. talking very analytically, but. I appreciate hearing the process. It helps. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope someone does that. Yes, maybe I'll try and do it. <laughs> Just yeah, add it to the list go. of things to do. <laughs> yeah, add that to your list of things yes. to do. All right. To Hermes. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share before we close? No, I've enjoyed this very much. Me so too. all I all I really need to add is is thank you. And, thank you. Um, this is quite an honor for you're my you're my first guest uh, interview, and uh, I, I I couldn't imagine anyone anyone else to you know just kick things off. This is amazing. This is a, a deep a deep honor. 
Well, thank you. It's a deep honor to be number one. And um, good luck with your work. Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to your uh, future publications. And your husband's book, too. I, I can't wait to see that, too. Maybe I'll get, have to get him on the podcast and we could talk about, you know, uh, uh, the new discoveries he has found uh, since Walter. Well, um, I can tell you an anecdote. You can either include it on the podcast okay. or you can come out if you find it boring. So many years ago, it was soon after that article that I wrote appeared. Um, I got a phone call back then, you know, we used phones. Um and the woman said, um, my name is such and such. I'm uh, a reporter for the Associated Press. I'm working on an article on uh, neopaganism. I think she said neopaganism. Um, would you mind if I ask you some questions? And I said, no, no problem. So she asked me a series of questions that I answered as best I could. And then she said, great, this is good. I'm almost done with my work. I just, there's a couple other scholars I need to get a hold of who's, work I've also been looking at because I know the neo-pagans use it I just I've had so much trouble contacting them and I said well let me know who they are maybe I know how to contact them and she said well one is Fritz Graf and I said oh he's outside mowing the lawn I can get him for you and there was this horrible <laughs> pause <laughs> I said what I said oh I thought I thought you knew he was my husband and she's no in this voice and I said, well, do you want me to get him? And she said, well, no, don't. Don't bother him with the lawn. <laughs> I, I can't talk to him right now anyway, so don't don't bother him. But then she said, the other person who I can't figure out how to get a hold of is Walter Burkert. And I said, oh, yeah, he was our teacher. He did my husband's doctoral dissertation, and I studied with him, too. And she said, there was another very long pause. <laughs> do you know she everyone? Said, no, no, worse. She said, do you? people like all hang around together and, it's, <laughs> and i said well yeah yeah that's so funny. that's funny definition of a small world definition of that's a small all that's awesome though that's cool i thank you for sharing that story that made me laugh yeah well good thanks for having me um, on thank you take care bye -bye. you too bye-bye